The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. As we get into this, this passage in Isaiah 55 tonight, it comes to us at a time in biblical history that's known as the exile, a period of time where the people of God, the chosen people of God who had been promised land had been driven from their homeland. Okay, let me ask you this. How many, how many Harry Potter buffs do we have in the room tonight? Harry, Harry Potter, okay, fair amount, that's good. So some of you may know this, and fear not, I'm gonna ex- explain. I'm gonna explain this. I want you to put yourself for a moment, if you will, in front of the mirror of Erised. Okay, do you remember what the mirror of Erised is? Dumbledore said it like this: the mirror of Erised shows the greatest desires of a person's heart, no more, no less. The greatest desires of a person's heart, no more, no less. Now, if I were to invite you to imagine that maybe you were HP or to just imagine that you could be in front of the mirror of Erised, what would you see? What do you know to be the greatest desire of your heart? What's that, that thing that you most desire? Well, if one of the ancient Israelites were to find themselves in front of such a mirror, what they would see is themselves back in Jerusalem, back in this promised land with their family, with their ancestors. It was the greatest desire of their heart. And for generations, this is a group of people that had not been able to do that. And in many cases, it would have led them in a place of despair, even wondering, where is God? And why has God left us? So the word we get here, as this is towards the end of the exile, is that there is this sense that maybe things are beginning to change. This word that comes, as we will look at tonight through the prophet Isaiah, is this promise that soon things will be different and soon you will be going home. But this is after generations, 70 years in Babylon. With that in mind, I just want to look at three short but powerful verses tonight. Let's begin by looking at Isaiah 55 beginning at the first verse. It says this. These are, these are gonna be familiar verses for people because these are lyrics that show up in many of the songs that we sing. It says this, come all who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Okay, I wanna stop there for a second to help you understand what, what is happening here in, in this text. Now, the language that's used here that is saying come would be an, an imperative. It would be a big invitation. And to really get uh, what kind of the, the strength of this text, 
Uh, it would be something like this. I know that many of you have probably in your, in your travels, perhaps your world travels, have found yourself in a place where inevitably there would be some tourist traps, right? Where uh, I find this on beaches, you know, you're trying to enjoy something, somebody comes up and, and this time they're gonna sell you a real sombrero. Okay? And they give, you, they give you a price, you know, and, and everybody knows you don't pay the first price that they give. And of course, they come back, hey, for you, for you, I'll give you something else. Or maybe you, your travels aren't to a beach, you just go to Safeco Field and those people, you know, are walking up and down the aisles saying, hey, I don't have lemons, but I have lemonade. Or the, the guy that I really love is, is the guy, he, he just goes like this. He goes down to the front aisle, he comes down, he puts both arms up and he goes, who wants a beer while I'm here? Okay, not that I'm endorsing, you know, that as, as much as it's, you know, it's, it's the language of a marketplace. And scholars believe that, that the, the, the form of this passage would be using that type of marketplace language. If you picture what those vendors in a market would say, how they're trying to sell you something, the big, the big pitch it seems that what the prophet is doing in speaking the words of the Lord is trying to communicate in the same way. To say, hey, over here, I have what you're looking for. And I have it at the right price. I have that which sustains you. And oh, by the way, unlike that beach, there's no haggling or bartering or getting ripped off. How do I know this? Because it's free. Come and buy without cost. Passage continues, Isaiah 55, verse 2. And here comes our big question. We've been doing a series on questions. It says this, why spend money on what is not bread and labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. I love that when Jasmine uh, called us into worship, she talked about worship as not just speaking or singing, but also listening. Okay, that's a, that's a key part of what we do. But there's our question. Why spend money on that which is not bread and why labor on that which is, does not satisfy? Now, keep in mind, our people in this story are, are very, very homesick. The greatest desire, what they would see in the mayor of Erised is to be back home, to be among the land of their ancestors. If you had that feeling of being homesick, where you just, where anything can happen, I'm, I'm scared that I'm going to, well, scare some of the high school seniors tonight as I tell you a story of the first time that I was sick when I was a freshman here at the University of Washington. Now, I have some ideas on how it happened, but those details aren't as important as much as saying, <laughs> I was really, really sick. Okay, and I was, I, this is, it's not, it wasn't like alcohol poisoning people. <laughs> for crying out loud, I, I know, I know I engaged in garden variety fraternal hedonism, but it wasn't that, Okay. I was actually, this is actually when I was still living in the dorms that I was this sick, okay? And at this point, I'm going, just anything, Gatorade, 7-Up, you know, ibuprofen, other drugs, whatever. Empty my bank account, <laughs> do whatever you need to do, but please make it better. Well, at my request, the RA, this dude named John, comes in, and I'm, I'm 
giving him my pathetic plea to somehow make it better. And he may have said other things, but the only thing I heard was, wow, it sounds like you really need your mom. (laughs) Okay, oh, thanks, John, good talk. (laughs) But the point is this, that when we are sick, and dare I say, even when we are homesick, we are willing to go and spend money on that which really doesn't do a whole bunch. We're desperate enough to perhaps empty the bank account of a freshman college student at that point to do whatever it would take to somehow make the circumstances different. All right, the invitation continues. Isaiah 55, verse three. This great invitation. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the people, a ruler and commander of the people. Okay, verse four. All right, here's what I wanna highlight here about David. A few weeks ago, I talked about 2 Samuel 7. And what you need to know is this, that he's restating the covenant that, that was given to David, which says, I am going to bless the house of David for, for generations to come. And in fact, I'm not just going to bless the house of David, I'm going to bless the world through the house of David. Now, for these people that would have found themselves in exile, that would have found themselves homesick and disappointed and in circumstances that flat out stink, they would find themselves, I would imagine, wondering, can God be trusted? Can God be trusted when they've been here for generations to sustain them and keep them secure? How would you feel? If you were were gone for 70 years and had no chance to go back home, And then there's this invitation to come, enjoy the best of God's provision. Enjoy that which satisfies and to do it for free. There's this sense of things are changing for us, this desperate moment that God speaks into. Now, I know that as I read these words and as I understand the desperation and the insecurity that these people must have felt in exile. I look at these words and go, it sounds too good to be true. And I imagine those people felt the same way. So the question then for us as we read these words becomes what does it mean for us to see if this is true? to see if this is an invitation that not only matters for the people of ancient Israel and Babylon, but to matter for us as well. How might we find sustenance and security in God and not in money and buying that which doesn't satisfy or our jobs? What might we do? What do we need to try? 
I want to give you three things to try, not as, not as self-help, but three things to try as an exercise in faith in discovering this God in Jesus who makes these promises. Three things to try. First, okay, and this is to a, a room of college students and, and, and high school students. I, I honestly don't know how this is gonna fly, so stay with me, okay? First is this. I'm gonna say it like this. Try giving money away. The prophet asks, why spend your money on that which is not bread? Now, to me, implicit in this question is an invitation to stewardship. Use money to purchase needed items for you and for others. Go with me on this. If Jesus lived in Seattle in 2015, in flesh and blood, no doubt, you know, I don't want to get, a, get us sidetracked here. Jesus lives, no, no doubt. But what if the incarnation happened right now and Jesus was, was executing his ministry here in Seattle? I want to posit this, that Jesus would have had money. He would have spent it on things like bread, on that which sustains. Okay, I'll take it a step further. I think that Jesus would have had a car. Okay? I don't think it would be a luxury SUV, mind you. Okay? But I think that Jesus would have had a car. I think Jesus would have a cell phone. I think he would have a computer. I think he would use the tools of the day for what? To move the mission forward. To, to continue on the mission that we know that Jesus to already have. To cast out demons. To heal the sick. To proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God that was for every, everyone. And he would do that. And you know, in, that, in that imaginative piece, wouldn't you love to see what, in fact, would Jesus do for that person on the street or on the, on the, the on-ramp to the freeway that asks him money? I would just love to see that. So I want, to, I want us to, to think about, yes, indeed, what would we imagine that Jesus would do with, with money? And as I encourage you to try giving money away, one thing that, that we can do is to be generous with the things that you already have. What does it look like if you, like I believe Jesus would, okay, who, if he had a car, what does it look like for you to share your car? to let somebody borrow when they, when they need it? What are the things that you have that you're afraid might get broken if somebody else uses it? Your computer, your phone? What, is, what does it look like to be generous with the things that we do have? Now, no doubt I could, I could talk about tithing right here, that, that the discipline of giving money, of, of giving to the church, and if for the people of Israel, that was a discipline that came out of sacrifice. They wouldn't give what was left over. They would give the first thing. It was a key part of their worship. Okay, I don't want to go into tithing a whole bunch, but we've somehow landed in our culture, in our Christian culture, as 10% as the number that we're supposed to give in order to be all right. I want to suggest that maybe 10% is just the starting point. Again, this isn't about earning our way to heaven. It's about 
exercising and practicing faith in the one who invites us to come and buy and eat without money and without cost. Do we believe that? One of the ways that we can see how this makes true, how this, this is true is to give and share the things that we do have. So that's one thing to try. See what happens. Second, try pursuing your deepest passion. Okay, to a group of college students that are trying to figure out their major, try and figure out what they want to do with their life, often we become a little bit tied down to, mm, maybe I shouldn't do what I'm most passionate about because I need to find something that has some dollar signs attached to it. The prophet in the text that we just read asked the question, why do you labor on that which does not satisfy? And the invitation therein is do that which does satisfy. Let me tell you a little bit about my weekend this past weekend. I was up as a work crew boss with many of you in this room up at Malibu, BC. And I got to be a work crew boss in the dining room. We have a picture of the great folks that helped out in there. And we had a blast. And I, and I have to tell you, and I gave, these guys the, I gave these guys the update every day, but um, on, my, on, on my pedometer, which is just a fancy word for a Fitbit, um, on my phone, okay, I was a work crew boss, so I wasn't even actually one of the people that was actually going out and serving the campers. Uh, me and Brooke would just kind of get to standing back and say, hey, have you checked the water? Okay, we weren't even working as hard as, as these guys were. And over the course of that three days, my pedometer told me that I walked 44 miles, okay? It was hard work that we did in the dining room there at Malibu in serving the campers you know, where we were not only serving food, but you are, are setting tables, you're bussing tables, you're resetting tables, and you do that over and over again, three times a day for the three days that we were there. And here's what, here's what I'm, I want to tell you, is that it was kind of fantastic. There was something about that labor that just felt great. There was something that was deeply satisfying about it. And while I can't totally put my finger on it, maybe it's because in that moment, I'm just not thinking about myself, not thinking about what, what's in this for me, what kind of, of, of status symbol is this for me. There was just a sense of, this is, this is fun. We're working hard and my feet hurt and I'm tired. And yet it feels kind of fantastic. You know, one of the, the struggles that I had in becoming a pastor was that I was, while I kind of enjoyed what I observed out of the job description, I was aware that this isn't what we might call the most financially gratifying career in the world. And I, as I, as I started working in ministry, I found myself jealous when friends were making a bundle of money in real estate or hedge funds or sales. And, and honestly, to be fair to them, as I would observe them, most of the time I would look and go, man, they are doing exactly what they are made to do. And yet when I would, was working in the marketplace and pursuing some of those same things, the thing that I found most satisfying 
was the relationships that came up with coworkers that inevitably started to look like pastoral relationships. Now, I don't want to make it sound like one has to be a pastor or work somehow directly in ministry in order to be satisfied with their work or their labor. What I want you to hear are a couple of things. That for a group of college students, I want to encourage you in this moment to go and discover the things that you're most passionate about. Go try in different things and don't worry as much about if there's, an, if there's a dollar sign attached to it. This is the time to go and discover different things. Go and make some mistakes. If you think you're passionate about something, go follow up on it and maybe you discover, you know, I'm really not all that passionate about it. Be honest with yourself. The invitation of this text is to go and labor on that which does in fact satisfy that's what it means in some, way, in some ways, I think, to come home. Now, if you don't know what your passions are, it's okay. A mentor of mine talks about you spend the first 33 years of your life trying to figure out what, what is your passion, what is your ministry, and then you spend the balance of your life actually doing it. Hear the invitation to go and participate in that which satisfies and if you are in the midst of this, maybe you're doing that here, know that part of, of what we do as a staff here at University Ministries, myself and our, and our interns and, and our senior staff, we love having these conversations with you. If you want to talk about the things that get you fired up or the things that wear you out, come in and, and let's go grab a cup of coffee. Let's go out to lunch. These are energizing conversations for us as a staff. All right, finally this. Try using different rules. Try using different rules. Too often, I think, our culture says, you are what your job is. We feel a tremendous amount of pressure to have the right job and maybe some status that comes with that. And I know that you experience this in college right now, right? Because you need to study hard so that you can get a good Okay, you need to have a good job so that you can make lots of, okay, you need to have lots of money so that you can buy lots of cool toys, things, fancy cars, CD players, whatever it is. Let's be real with ourselves again for a second. What does security look like for us? Why? Is security being in control because of a job title and status that comes with it? Is security being seen as significant in the eyes of your friends or perhaps your parents, peers, a professor? Is security being identified as more spiritual than those around you? What I want to offer by saying try playing by a different set of rules might start by asking a different set of questions. Instead of asking, hey, what's your major or what do you do for a living? What if we started asking, what are you passionate about? What do you love to do on the weekend? What makes you 
absolutely come alive. We all do this, right? We have things that we want and we want them right now. I know that I want my way and typically I want my way yesterday. What would it look like for me to respond to the question, what do you do? By answering, honestly, honestly, what I do is I try to trust God every day. I try to trust God to be my security. And what's more, what if I actually tried to do that? to trust a faithful God. Friends, the invitation of this text is an invitation that takes us back to the mirror of Erised, that we might look into the mirror and see ourselves exactly as we are, but somehow see Jesus right at our side. You see, Jesus promised to be with us always, and he promises to be with us no matter the circumstances. Even when those circumstances are chaotic and unfavorable, he is by our side a God that is more willing to provide the richest affair than we are to receive it. And so tonight, as we seek to be people who simply try things that we might grow in faith by seeing God make good on God's promises to his people, to sustain them and give them security. I want to invite us also to try this by coming to this table. This is a table that we practice to. We practice this idea of coming and buying and eating without any cost. That is to say, it is a table that shows us the grace of Jesus Christ and shows us that what, everything that we've just talked about is not just a good idea, but it's real. Through these ordinary elements of bread that we can put in our hands and this wine that we take, the, the juice in this case, that we take into our bodies, we're reminded that the kingdom is tangible, that it's real. And that God invites us to know him in such a way that it's not just a good idea, but that God can be trusted. For it was on the night he was betrayed that our Lord took bread and he broke it. And he gave it for his friends to eat, saying, this is my body broken, take and eat. And in the same way after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Take and drink. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's life and death until he comes again. Friends, the invitation for us is to see that and feel and taste 
that God can be trusted for our security. He's dying to do that for you. Let's try taking a step in faith and trust tonight. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your promises, your good gifts to us. And we pray that as we come to this table now, that we would know your goodness and your grace, that it would be tangible, that it would somehow be real for us as we join together uh, with, with all believers in enjoying the gifts that you give. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.